I'm Robert Child, and I'd love for you to join me on my brand new podcast, Stories of Faith and Courage. In gripping narratives, we'll walk alongside ancient heroes who face down giants, conquering adversity, and hear tales of modern-day warriors whose unwavering faith sustained them through the darkest of times. Plus, we'll explore enigmatic ancient mysteries like the connection of the Shroud of Turin to the Knights Templar that will leave you on the edge of your seat. I hope you'll join me on Stories of Faith and Courage. It's available now on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. In Episode 3, we learn in detail more about the defenders, the Germans, their command structure, fortifications, equipment, and their state of mind. I'm Robert Child, and Episode 3 of D-Day in 90 Minutes will begin in a moment. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, Immortal Valor, has just been released in paperback. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes, life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you pick up the new paperback version, hardcover or audiobook, available in stores and online. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. The Defenders, Germans, an army such as the world has never seen, Adolf Hitler. That was 1939. By 1944, the Wehrmacht had suffered immensely. Casualties in Russia alone, killed, wounded, missing, were over three million. Hitler had run out of Germans. His armies consisted of Germans and French, Hungarians, Romanians, Poles, Finns, representatives of all other Eastern European countries, Russian POWs, and even a few soldiers from India. Four Koreans in Wehrmacht uniforms were captured on D-Day. Many soldiers were old, infirm, mending from wounds, foreign, and with low morale. On the flip side, some troops, primarily the Waffen-SS and paratroopers, were highly trained, highly effective veterans, and highly fanatical. But on most of the Normandy beaches, the troops were subprime. They were not young either. The average age of the 709th Division defending Utah Beach was 36. The average age of all Wehrmacht troops was almost 32. The average age of the U.S. Army soldier was a bit over 25. The Wehrmacht soldiers may not have been young, fit, and enthusiastic, but they all had trigger fingers, were behind concrete barricades, and zeroed in on the beaches. In addition, officers and NCOs were not shy about shooting slackers. 212,000 Wehrmacht soldiers were executed during the war for infractions, ranging from defeatist talk to cowardice. Who were the enemy troops the Allies would face when they came ashore? Defending the West End, the American end, of the invasion area, was the 709th Static Infantry Division. The 709th was formed in May 1941 and was effectively destroyed in the invasion and the capture of Cherbourg. Static meant defensive with no motorized transport. They used horses. The division had many Russian XPOWs and Eastern European soldiers. 
all the officers and NCOs were Germans, willing to enforce orders at the point of a gun. From D-Day until the fall of Cherbourg ten days later, 4,000 of the 12,000 soldiers in the 709th would become casualties. The 101st and 82nd Airborne Drop Zones were occupied by the 91st Air Landing Division. They were regular infantry troops trained and equipped to be transported by air. They were not paratroopers. It did not have one panzer battalion. But many of the tanks were captured French tanks, not German panzers. The division saw heavy fighting in the Sainte-Marie-Eglise area, with the 82nd, where their division commander was killed. Rushing to stop the advance at Utah Beach, the division took heavy casualties. By the end of the first week after the invasion, the division was considered to be not fighting effective. The majority of the division's soldiers were captured in the fall of Cherbourg. The U.S. 1st Division and 29th Division landing at Omaha Beach drew the short straw. They attacked in the zone defended by the 352nd Infantry Division. The 352nd included many veterans of the Russian front, experts at holding defensive positions. They held the areas between Bayou and Carentan, with Omaha Beach right in the middle between the two cities. The British and Canadians had better luck at Sword, Juno, and Gold Beaches, where they faced the 716th, another static division. It also didn't have many German soldiers. The ones it did were in France because they were considered unfit to fight in Russia. The division was made up mostly of Ost, or East, troops, Russian POWs, and other Eastern European nationalities. The Russian POWs were nicknamed Hiwis, voluntary assistance in German. If a Hiwi was captured in Russia, he was considered a former Russian and most often executed. The divisions were built along similar lines as the British and American armies. Eight to eleven men formed a rifle squad. Three squads formed a platoon. Three platoons make up a company. One platoon would usually have a first or second lieutenant as commander. The other two platoons were led by an NCO, a master sergeant. Three platoons rolled up to a company. Three companies rolled up to a battalion. Three or four battalions were a regiment, and three or four regiments became a division. Headquarter and support units completed the division. A German division was usually less than 10,000 men. A sergeant who was a lower rank than the master led the base of the army, the rifle squad. He carried a machine pistol, an MP-40 Schmeiser with six clips holding 32 rounds each. Equipment included a compass, wire cutters, field glasses, whistle, flashlight, and sunglasses. The squad revolved around their light machine gun, a Model 34 or 42. 34s were handmade and the highest in quality. They also broke down, and when they did, a highly trained mechanic was needed to fix them. The 42 was mass-produced. The guns weighed about 40 pounds with tripod and shot the standard Mauser 7.92 round. The gun was 48 inches in length, air-cooled and recoil-operated. The clips held 50 rounds and could be fed by a belt or drum, both holding 50 rounds. The operator carried the gun, a tool pouch, and a pistol. The German machine gun design would survive the war and be used by, among others, Red China, North Korea, North Vietnam, and Israel. 
The gunner's assistant carried a spare barrel, four ammunition belts or drums, a pistol, and an ammunition box carrying 300 rounds. An ammunition carrier toted another barrel, two ammunition boxes with 300 rounds each, and another belt or drum. Additional members of the squad carried rifles, two ammunition pouches, a spade, and, depending on the operation, hand and smoke grenades, ammunition, and machine gun tripods. The Wehrmacht used just about any kind of weapon it could get its hands on. But the standard Wehrmacht rifle was the Mauser Carabiner 98K adopted in 1935. The rifle was the largest in the long line of bolt-action rifles, dating from World War I and before. It weighed nine pounds, held a clip of five rounds, and over 14 million were made. It is a fine weapon, but the Allies' weapons, especially the Americans, were better. By 1944, the German soldier was wearing a uniform bottle green in color, as opposed to the Feldkau, field gray, of World War I. The tunic was shorter than earlier uniforms because more troops were motorized. As the war progressed, the material became a mix of rayon and shoddy. Shoddy is a noun as well as an adjective, with shoddy material being wool mixed with scraps of material from used clothing. Shoddy was first used in the American Civil War, and the tendency to shred led to the term becoming an adjective for poor quality. The pants worn were of the same material with loops for a belt, a reinforced seat, and tapered ankles to fit in the ankle-high boots that replaced the jack boot in 1942 because of cost and lack of materials. The shoes, Schurschnur, or lace-up shoe, came with canvas gaiters or covers that ran up the ankle. Officers and NCOs retained the jackboot, but the boots got progressively shorter to save material as the war went on. Both the Schnurschuhe and the jackboot had nails driven into the soles of the boots and nails or iron plates on the heel. The nails and irons protected the leather shoes and heels from the wear and tear of marching. The Wehrmacht soldier carried his personal items in a converted canvas bread bag hooked on his belt. The belt had a metal buckle and shoulder straps. The belt carried six ammo pouches with 30 rounds each, his entrenching tool and bayonet, canteen, and a metal cylinder with his gas mask. While the Wehrmacht were the boots on the ground, the major German problem was the lack of an overall commander of the forces. General Erwin Rommel was the nominal commander, but the Luftwaffe did not report to him. The Navy did not report to him. And the overall panzer commander, General Heinz Guderian, had no problem going over his head to Hitler. Even though Rommel had once been a mentor to Guderian, the panzer commander was comfortable breaking the chain of command. Finally, Rommel reported to 69-year-old Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, Commander-in-Chief West, an avid reader, like Eisenhower, of pulp westerns. The various leaders disagreed on tactics. Rommel wanted the armor at the front to throw the Allies back into the sea. Guderian wanted his panzers back from the sea where they could race to the scene after the real attack was confirmed. Rommel argued that Allied air superiority would destroy the tanks before they could reach the battle. Runestead was more in Guderian's camp, wanting to lure the Allies inland and battle them there, away from the naval guns of the British and American navies. The panzers would be a key element in the battle, and Hitler made a compromise. 
which he often did to appease competing parties. He turned three panzer divisions over to Rommel and ordered the remaining four to be stationed inland and released when the invasion was confirmed. Rommel placed one division, the 21st, near Caen, near the British invasion sites. The other two were strung out between Pas-de-Calais and the invasion sites. They would not be a factor on D-Day. The 21st was a favorite of Rommel's. They had been under his command in North Africa. On June 6, 1944, the 21st Division had only 140 tanks and mechanized vehicles. Finally, the Germans were protected and could fight behind the Atlantic Wall. In March 1942, Hitler issued a Führer directive to build the wall after the British commando raid on the dry dock at Saint-Nazaire. The British packed an aging destroyer, the HMS Campbelltown, with explosives and rammed it into the dry dock. A 600-man commando force was landed as well to blow up port facilities, but got into a running battle and was forced to surrender. The dry dock was knocked out of service until 1955. As Allied forces built up in England, Rommel fortified, or attempted to fortify, every beach that might be an invasion possibility. Going from sea to land, the first line of fortifications were mines anchored in the channel. Each beach was different, but the layout on the flat tidal beaches of Normandy started with Belgian gates, steel structures three yards wide by two yards high, towable by horses. They were called Belgian gates because they were first used in the Belgian KW line, the country's defensive line in central Belgium facing Germany. Rommel ordered Teller anti-tank mines attached to the Belgian gates. When mines weren't available, the Germans used French artillery shells pointed seaward. The next line of defense was a band of logs driven into the beach and topped with Teller mines. Thirty yards behind the logs were ten-foot lengths of steel, welded at their centers to rip out the bottoms of landing crafts. Each beach had exits leading inland, and each exit had firing trenches, usually in rows of three. On the slopes of the ridges facing the beaches were ringstanden, nicknamed Tobruks. Tobruks were concrete emplacements characterized by a large circular opening for a weapon. They were flush to the ground on three sides, hard to see and hard to knock out. The Tobruks housed machine guns and or mortars, and were connected underground by tunnels. Some Tobruks were topped off with a tank turret, usually from an obsolete Renault or Hotchkiss tank. Two men, the gunner or mortarman, and his loader manned Tobruks. Dotted among the Tobruks were larger fortifications of reinforced concrete, housing 75mm, 88mm and 105mm cannons aimed directly down the beaches. The guns were not all German. Many were guns from various nations conquered by the Third Reich. The Germans had personnel, some tanks, millions of mines, beach obstacles, machine guns, rifles, mortars, and cannons, all zeroed in on beaches they had occupied and mapped for over two years. They did not have naval power or air power but that meant little to the G.I. or Tommy, who had to get past the firepower on the ground. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of D-Day in 90 Minutes. Join us next week for our next installment, The Attackers, The Americans, 
I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.